Today we're going to start a new series, and we're doing something I've never done before. We're going to be teaching through a series that is not specifically Christmas-based, but it is all about Jesus. And we're going to be doing this not just through Christmas Eve, we're going to be doing this through probably January as well. And if you excuse me, remember, um, we have been taking you through somewhat of a, a new mission statement for us. And it's not really new, it's really more of a clarification. For years, we said our mission statement was to love God and love people, period. And while that is still true, it's not, we haven't changed that like we don't want to do that anymore. We haven't changed that, but every church has that mission statement just about, and it means something different to everybody. So we wanted to have a little more clarity about who we are and what we're trying to do. So I don't know if you remember what we've been sharing over the last few weeks, um, but our mission statement for the most part is this. Um, Journey Church is a community of changed people who are seeking to lead others to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. So last few weeks we've been talking about the good news of Jesus Christ being um, that part of that mission of leading people to be with Jesus, which is incredibly important for us moving forward because what we find is you can go through all of the motions of going to church and reading your Bible and having faith in Christ and yet still feel fairly empty or even not sure it's really real within your life. And the Bible makes lots of pretty important promises. One being you're a new creation. Another being um, you are completely new and that you are going to conform to the image of Christ. Uh, and so those promises that the scripture makes, we have to come to some rec reconciliation about, well, why is it that so many people don't feel that anything really changes within their life? And I want to just start this by not saying this is a formula, um, series trying to talk to me. This is not a formula that I'm going to try to share with you uh, because formulas just don't work. But what, and it's also not a, if you're a good Christian, you will always feel transformed. Because I don't always feel transformed. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, man, you have so far to go. And other days I feel like, wow, I'm just so excited about what God's doing in my life. So when, you, when we come into this kind of a series, I want to do that carefully so that we don't come into this is a good Christian versus a bad Christian. If, as we followed through the series of good news, what we found is we are all in need of good news. And the good news is that it is for everyone and God's grace is so incredibly expansive that it welcomes all of us because we are all sinners and we all struggle. This is not a good Christian versus bad Christian. But I will say that in some ways the things we're going to be talking about in this series are the difference between what is a disciple and what's not a disciple. Um, and the way we're going to talk about it is through the lens of a promise that Jesus made, an incredibly exclusive statement where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. If anyone wants to come to the Father, they must come through me. So we're going to be using that lens, but it's also going to be a little bit of a different series. So typically when we're going to do a series on discipleship or being a disciple or becoming like Christ, uh, the thing that we talk about are activities, actions, steps you need to add into your life. You need to read your Bible so many minutes a day. You need to pray so many minutes a day. You need to go to church. You need to give. You need to find a mission. You need to do all these things. 
And while those are all incredibly important to discipleship, that is not going to be the focus of this series. Instead, we're going to be looking from kind of a higher um, level view of what it means to become like Christ. And a lot of that is going to be the way we see things, the way we act, what is our worldview, and how does that worldview change us. And the truth is, if you're sitting here thinking, I just don't know, I I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, I don't really feel changed, Uh, this could be a really important series for you. Um, But for others, um, you know, maybe this is uh, just a a reminder. Um, But for all of us, some of the things we're going to be talking about over the next nine weeks, it's going to be a nine-week series, are going to be incredibly important for where we go from here. So our focus is on becoming like Jesus. And we started with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, um, when we started talking about the good news in our last years. I just want to read that again because it's going to hinge us into to this one. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace, and yet it is not our works that save us. However, when we are saved, you will see works from our life. It is a reality that a changed life is going to be different in the way that they work and respond within the world, and eventually a different way that you're going to see the world, which is, for all of us in this room, a lifetime endeavor. If a person comes to faith, you know, young in life, you know, they're going to have a long time, hopefully, to change the way they see the world. For those who come to faith later in life, their view of the world is still going to change. Maybe not to the same degree that someone who's had more time or more experiences with Christ, or maybe they will. Time is not the only indicator of how far you're going to grow within your faith. A lot of it is just our own heart and our own willingness. So we spent time talking about being with Jesus, and I'm not going to rehash the Good News series, but but these are some of the high points that I shared with you um, that are just important for us to understand. If we're going to become like Jesus, we have to know that first we have a relationship with him. We said this, the good news is that no matter how broken or battered you are, Jesus wants to fully restore you. We find that message throughout the Old and the New Testament. In fact, if you want to partner with Jesus, It is not about looking perfect. It is not about getting the right person in the, you know, whatever political office that we're now supposed to put into political office. It's not about um, the ability to come to church and, and do all the things that we can do at church. That's not really what it means to have the good news and to experience that. What we find throughout the Old Testament and the New is that God has been working to restore us from the moment that we fell in the garden. He's been working through Israel, then he began working through Jesus, and then, well, he's always been working through Jesus, and then he is now working through us to bring redemption to the world with this incredible message of good news for people. He is seeking to restore us. If we are not being restored, something is broken. And so as we begin to to work on being restored, it's going to change the way we see and the way we act. We also said that the gift of salvation really is a free gift. It really is. It's not something we can earn. And what we have a tendency to do 
is we have a tendency to put little markers that we're supposed to do in order to be a good Christian. But when we do that, we deny the reality that it really is a free gift. It is so easy to slip into, I need to do something to earn this, when you, you do not have to do something to earn it. You cannot earn it. It is a free gift. But what we also um, decided was that the free gift has to be seen as valuable. Like if I have a gift that I want to give you that you're not interested in. So for most of you in this room, all of you I guess are adults in this room, I joked about the bubble toys last week. Now if I brought in a whole bunch of bubble toys, undoubtedly some of you would be excited if I handed you one, but most of you would be like, yeah, I don't really, you can give that to somebody else. A free gift has to be seen as valuable if you want to receive it. Maybe you'll take it just because you don't want to hurt my feelings, but then you toss it or you give it away or, or just leave it on the, the pew or something. It has to be seen as valuable to be received. So no matter how much we go to church, if we don't see the value of knowing and being with Christ and becoming like Him, we will not seek to become that. We have to see it as a valuable gift. We also said that the free gift can't be earned, but we do have to choose it. So I'm going to be speaking as if you have chosen this, and that's why you're here today. And finally, this quote from Tim Keller that we read in our first uh, week of Good News, the gospel is central because it's not merely one department of belief, but it is a power that affects every area of life when its implications are felt and thought out. It really is the foundation and the base of which everything else we do is built upon. This idea that we are in need, that we have been given a free gift, and that in this free gift we are going to become something different than we are. That's why some of the most profound testimonies are someone who's been to prison, or they were addicted to something and then they got off, or some kind of you know big story, we get drawn into those but in those stories, they, there was an obvious place where they felt like, I have a need, something is not right, and I need something more. If we don't come to that place, if we don't have that place to choose Him, then we're not going to base everything else on the gospel. That's just going to be a piece. And the way that usually shakes out for us in our culture is it usually shakes out in the form of, like, I'm going to pray the prayer, I'm going to go to church a few times, I'm going to give a little bit of money, and I'm going to you know, try not to do the really bad stuff just in case this thing is real and I die and there really is a heaven and a hell. And we have played up hell so much so that we have this figure with a pointy tail and a pitchfork and he's red with horns and we have this just inferno that we're going to burn perpetually forever which most of that imagery comes from just modern literature, not from Scripture. And so as we enter into this, our, our goal is not just to continue with the platitudes of Christianity. It's not just to say, now if you want to be a good Christian, this is what you need to do. And if you're a good Christian, then maybe you'll have a better mansion than somebody else because you're building up your treasure in heaven and you're going to have more heavenly treasure than maybe your neighbor will because they're not doing as many good things. That's not, the, that's not the direction that we're, we're wanting to take, but how do we really change inside? We'll talk about that a little bit this morning, but we're going to start really start that next week. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, this is what Paul says about becoming a Christian. He says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. 
At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ and God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him, which is the whole message of the Bible. I don't know how you read stories or how you take in data. I know a lot of people are good with a lot of details. I'm not a good person to enter in at the detail level. I need to start kind of big picture and then move into the details. I need to know how things fit together and I need to know kind of where this bucket goes and that bucket goes. I need a big bucket for it all to go in so that I can make sense of it. And I think a lot of times when we approach Scripture, the reason we don't read it is because we think, gosh, I got here's another little bucket. I don't really know how this fits. I don't really know what to do with it because we don't know what the big bucket that it fits in. And the big bucket is what Paul is saying. It's also what God said to Abraham. It's also what God said to Israel. It's also what God said through the prophets. It's also what Jesus said. It's also what Jesus told his disciples. It's also what Jesus told his disciples to tell other people and is telling us today, if you want to be a part of Christ, this is what it's about. It is about being reconciled with God. This is what it's about. This is the big picture of Scripture. It is being reconciled with God. And that reconciliation is only fully made possible through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28, he says this, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. We all probably know that verse. You may not know that the very second verse is this one. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. All these things are happening in our life, and God is working them to good for our good to make us become like His Son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. I want you to know, if you're here today, the point of you knowing the gospel and following Jesus and being involved in Bible study and being involved in prayer and sharing faith in whichever way, as we've said before, sharing faith can be sharing the gospel. Sharing faith can also be demonstrating what peace looks like in your life, being a peacemaker, what joy looks like. It can also uh, look like just being decent, to other people. There are lots of ways that we share our faith. How is God changing us? How is God moving in us? How is God doing something different in us? How are we showing people that we're becoming like Christ? Well, the title of our series comes from John chapter 14, and it's where Jesus makes this incredibly bold statement. And this is what it means to become a disciple. This is what it means to decide that we're going to follow him. Verse 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If there were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Because remember, the good news is about being with Jesus. And you know the way where I am going. And before we jump away from this, um, I've, I've read this passage more times than not at funerals. 
It is one of the go-to passages to read at funerals because if your loved one who has passed away was a believer, the great hope that we have is that we will come to faith uh, in Christ. Not that we'll come to faith in Christ, but our faith in Christ will mean that we are with God in heaven for an eternity. God is going, Jesus is going to prepare a place, and he's going to summon us. We assume that is whenever we die and we get to go. And if we've lived a good life, our room might be like a master. And if we've not lived a really good life, but we kind of screech in by the skin of our teeth, maybe we've got a little closet in heaven. You know, we, we, we view the scripture in really weird ways. But if you remember when we talked about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, it was more akin to a wedding than it was to just a giving a decree of how you have to live your life now. And we talked about ancient Near Eastern weddings and what happens through the engagement and betrothal process until you finally get to the wedding process. I, you know, I don't think Alex and Autumn went through this process, but maybe. I don't know. Alex was off building a room somewhere for Autumn off his parents' house, but probably not. But they got married this week, by the way. So brand new newlyweds here. Um, and what we found is in an ancient Near Eastern wedding, whenever the groom asked the bride to marry him, they may or may not know each other well. In fact, most of these ceremonies were planned by the family. The whole family gets together and decides, who's the right person to marry, you know, little Timmy? And, you know, let's, let's find him, a, you know, a little Jane over here to marry little Timmy. And let's make sure she's going to fit in our family well. And, uh, you know, and so anyways, a lot of times these marriages were arranged and they didn't know each other very well. There, there's no indication that they didn't have some word in it like, oh yeah, I don't have anything to do with her, you know, but there's, there's no indication they didn't have some influence in that decision, but the family was a part of that decision. But once they made the decision, he would go and he would basically ask her to be his fiance. And at that point he would do that, he would then leave and he would go back home. And if you remember, while today like our kids are getting degrees and they're going to get a job and they're likely, you know, hopefully going to move out one day and be on their own. Um, you all have those same hopes for your children. Uh, that was not the way that it was back then. Instead, life was about staying with the family. So if we were living in that time, I would not want any of my kids to move out. I would want them to stay there. They're going to do work around the the homestead, they're going to um, you know, help whenever you know, animals come in and try to kill the animals that we have in pens. They're going um, to work the farm. They're going to help around the house. They're going to help raise everybody else's kids too. I, they're going to be a part of our family system, and we're going to need them there. And so as they go back and he waits, after he's asked her to be his bride, he'll have to go have a room built for their place to stay once they get married. This is the imagery that Jesus is giving us in John chapter 14. He's saying, I'm going to prepare the place. Now once the groom has prepared the room and the father of the groom says, yeah, that's good enough. You can bring her over here. This is a, a proper place for you all to live. Then he goes back and then the ceremony will eventually happen and they will bring them back to the house. Well, this is what Jesus is saying, what it means to know and follow him. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm asking for more than just for you to believe in me. I want a relationship with you that is going to be deeper and is going to be more committed. And I, we are going to be in this together. So I'm going to prepare a place for you, just like the groom would prepare a place. And when it's ready, just as Jesus said, when it's ready, I'm going to come back and get you and I'm going to bring you here. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's taking us to a deeper level of relationship and saying, I want us to be so committedly together that our relationship is more akin to a marriage than it is simply to a God in which you believe in. So as we enter into this statement of Jesus inviting them into this relationship with him, it goes on and Thomas he says, you know the way where I am going. In verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And this is where Jesus said these words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and you have seen him. Then Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Now these are pretty big words that he's using. Big claims. Big promises. Big expectations. Hey, I, I and the Father are one. Just like if you're going to be my disciple, you and I are going to be one. I do the works of the Father, you're going to go out and do the works that I do. This relationship with Christ is something more than simply we come and we do church and we hope one day when we die we get to go to heaven. There is so much more to that life that we are missing out on if that's all that the gospel is to us. If it doesn't change the way we see people, the way we act with people, the way we treat people, if it doesn't change the way our hearts respond to difficult circumstances, if it doesn't end in peace at times where you normally wouldn't be at peace, or comfort at times when you feel like your life is falling apart, then it feels like that the gospel may just be empty promises. And the question we have to come to is simply this, are they empty promises or are they real? And the reality is, you're going to have times in your lives in which you are going to feel like they are not empty promises. And you're likely, maybe not, but you're likely going to have times where you're going to, you're going to feel like, I'm not sure if any of this stuff is true or real. I'm not sure that I feel peace. I'm not sure that I feel comfort. I'm not sure that I feel close to Jesus. But he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. There is this really interesting dynamic between growing and doing. 
which is made complicated by what we started off with in that you are not saved by your doing or your works. And yet we have so much doing throughout Scripture, at times it feels like, what are you trying to say? This is inconsistent at best or hypocritical at worst. What are you really trying to say here? And that's something I want us to try to unpack together over the next few weeks. So what does it look like to become like Jesus? I mean, that is what we're trying to get at in our time together. And Luke, Jesus says this. Um, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me give you a little pop quiz. Eternal life. Could someone give me a succinct definition of eternal life? Anybody? Living forever? What else? How else have we talked about eternal life in here together? Do you remember? It's a quality of life now and forevermore. This is why you as a a follower and believer in Jesus Christ can experience heaven on earth in moments, but you can also experience hell on earth in other moments. See, I think one of the things we did so that so dramatically changed the gospel for us is making eternal life solely that thing when you die. When we do that, we have an, a, we can emphasize hope and we can emphasize faith but we may miss all the things God's been working at since the Garden of Eden. He's been working for so much more than that. What does it look like to have eternal life? That's the question he asked him. What do I have to do to eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Or we could say, do this and you will have eternal life. We're changing our mission statement from loving, love God, love people, but yet that is the point of what God's trying to do within our lives. What he's been trying to do throughout history Loving God and loving people. It would be nice, I don't know exactly what it would would look like, if we truly loved people all the time. I think for some people that would mean that we would just always be okay with whatever you wanted to do. Never judge, never hold accountable, never communicate disappointment at all. I think there's a lot of people that believe to love others is to not ever tell someone they should stop doing something. I would encourage you not to parent that way, or you're going to be in big trouble. And even Scripture tells us that God will tell us no. God will tell us you need to change your course. But He doesn't do it simply because, you know what, I want you to do this because, you know, I just want you to do it. I don't have a really good reason for it. I just want you to do it. Instead, He tells us, the things I don't want you to do are the things that are going to hurt you in these areas, in your ability to love me and your ability to love each other. 
There are times that I want to do something that just makes me feel like I would be fully fulfilled, and yet by me being able to do that, it's going to harm someone else. I remember um, a movie that I... If you remember Bruce Almighty, one of Jim Carrey's movies, we used to love to watch that movie. I'm sure you still can. It's streaming somewhere. And in that movie, um, he basically is given all the power of God, played by Morgan Freeman, which if there was an actor to play God, should be Morgan Freeman, um, to be honest. I'm not really sure he'll take his place, um, because I think he's now retired, but... um, he gives him complete power, and Bruce then has to now hear all the prayers of everyone around the world, and he has to respond to them, and he feels absolutely overwhelmed. And we have this you know, interesting um, image that God uses these old filing cabinets to go through and take care of all the requests, and he's just totally overwhelmed. He, here he is uh, in the digital age, and so he ends up changing it so that every prayer request that comes in comes in through email. And all he has to do is pull up his email and respond to all of the emails. And he decides that the easiest way to handle this load is simply to say yes to everyone's request. And so he goes down every email, yes, 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 clears his email box, and he's incredibly proud of himself. But then all of a sudden he finds out that the world is falling apart. Because there are times that we ask for things that feel totally fulfilling for us, but are going to harm other people. People. There are times that we, that God does say no. There are times that He says this is not what eternal life looks like. That He says if you want to live, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we repeat this over and over again. If you need a broad stroke of what God is doing, it's redeeming the world to Himself. If you want a broad stroke on how God is doing that, he is doing that through Jesus Christ and through his disciples. And if you want to know a broad stroke about what God is asking for of us, if we are going to be his disciples, he's asking of us that we will love God and that we will love each other. Those are the broad strokes. And we can dive into Scripture, we can dive into lots of details, but those are the broad, broad strokes. In reality, we tend to reject this Because it just seems so simplistic, doesn't it? Just love God and love people. It's so much easier to say you need to read your Bible 10 minutes a day, you need to pray 5 minutes a day, you need to give 10% of your income, and you need to come to church at least once a week. Isn't that so much easier than the simplistic, open-ended statement of you just need to love God and you need to love other people? And the question that often comes up in my mind is this, well, then how, do I, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to love everybody that I come in contact with? And I think what Jesus would say to that question is simply, exactly. This is a struggle. Struggle and tension are foundational to our ability to seek God. To wrestle and to question and to ask God, what am I supposed to do in this situation, is exactly the point of following Him. It is going through Scripture and saying, well, I think this is what Scripture says, but I'm not sure that's really what God's telling me I'm supposed to do here. I'm not sure that that really applies to to this part of my life. God, what are you saying? 
And we have the Holy Spirit within us that's going to help us to make this wrestling match turn out in our favor. I love the imagery of wrestling. Because it's not so cut and dry and easy as we tend to make it. Because we are talking about eternal life after all. Talking about life now and forevermore. We can talk about reading the Bible, but we're not going to because that's not enough. But also, without reading the Bible, you can't become like Christ fully. We're not going to talk a lot about prayer in this series. However, if you're not spending time in prayer, there's no way that you're going to become like Christ. We're not going to create an arbitrary um, attendance standard so that you need to come to church so many times a week. However, if you are intentionally separating yourself from the church, you can't become like Christ. It doesn't mean that we need to go to every church or that every church is healthy. But it does mean that we need to be a part. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about tithing. However, if you don't learn hospitality and generosity and sacrifice, it's going to, you're, you're not going to be able to emulate the way Jesus lived his life. Because Jesus lived a hospitable, generous, sacrificial life. But those are not feel-good things unless we have found a gift that is more valuable than the life that we're living now. Why do I want to enter into any kind of a religious belief that says I need to sacrifice? Sacrifice is the thing we try to avoid. And yet Jesus says if you want to fully embrace this life as a disciple, you have to embrace sacrifice for the sake of others. And he demonstrates that most keenly in his own life. So what does it look like to become like Jesus? We're going to be walking through different ways of viewing the world, different ways of viewing people. We're going to talk about some of the ways that we tend to focus on different aspects of our life versus the way the Bible talks about those aspects of our life. And more specifically, over the next nine weeks, and we're going to be borrowing um, heavily from a pastor by the name of John Tyson who wrote a book called Beautiful Resistance, which if you want to pick that up and follow along, you'll be in, good, in a good place to talk about these things. We're going to talk about nine um, different uh, core values or ways of doing life, and then their alternative that has a tendency to take life away from us. They are, put that next slide up, worship, versus idolatry, rest versus exhaustion, hunger versus apathy, hospitality versus fear, honor versus contempt, love versus hate, sacrifice versus privilege, and celebration versus cynicism. At the end of the day, I, I want us to be a church of good orthodoxy. You know the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy? Those are churchy words we don't often use in normal language. Orthodoxy is something that we have, the church has been incredibly focused on for a long time, and that is right belief. Praxis is action, activity, right action. We want to be a people of right belief, but we want it to be a people of right action as well. How is this word changing us? 
How are we practically working this out in our life? How, when we come in contact with other people, do they look at us and do they say, they've been with Jesus? We want to focus on both of those things. The reason we're talking about becoming like Christ is because becoming like Christ is the way to eternal life. And my hope for myself and for my family and for all of you is that we will experience eternal life now and forevermore. We do that by becoming like Christ. All right? It's our introduction for today. I uh, told my wife and a few others that I had a shorter sermon today, and she, she mocked me a little bit, um, that it was not possible, and yet... Ha! All right. I did it. And I have eternal life right now. All right, no, that's uh, not really what the direction we're going in. But um, I hope you will join us. Um, next week we're going to light the next Advent candle, and we're not going to be <laughs> devoid of talking about Christmas. But I don't think we can honor the coming birth of Jesus any more than truthfully seeking to become like Him. And so as we do this, I hope that you'll, you'll consider some new things, some new ways of seeing, some new ways of doing. I hope you'll consider that eternal life is available for you now, and it is not going to guarantee, eternal life does not guarantee there is no hardship. But I hope that as you experience Christ, what you experience in Him is not simply a way to believe and a hope when you die, but when you experience Christ, you experience Him today and every day. And on the days that you don't, that you know that is a passing day. And Jesus is with us. And the way we see the world and the way we live in the world is changing. Where we love God and we love people. Would you pray with me?